Well, good morning. It is a great privilege to be with you this morning. I'm thankful to Carl and to the session for the invitation to come and preach your Bible conference this weekend. We had a great time last night being with you. Uh, my wife and I have enjoyed our time in Greenville. Uh, we bring greetings from the saints at Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church. Uh, there is uh, somewhat of a connection between our church and yours. Uh, Steve and Wendy Wilkinson were members of our congregation as well. Some of you may remember Brandon and Whitney Jones. Uh, we also sent them up here from Pear Orchard to, to, to Woodruff Road. And so uh, we're thankful uh, for the, the, the connection that we have uh, with your congregation. And I'm thankful for my relationship with uh, Carl and your other pastors. I've known Carl for over 20 years. And uh, it is a privilege uh, now to, to sit in this pulpit, to stand in this pulpit and bring God's word to you. Uh, we are uh, looking at a passage that uh, I, I hope and I, I'm confident is not unfamiliar to you. Uh, I doubt that I will be saying anything new uh, to you this day. And yet, uh, by the grace of God, uh, may what is said at least be from a new perspective, give you uh, a new glimpse, a new way of looking at this text. Let's pray again and ask the Lord to bless us as we study his word. Oh, Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you, Lord for the truth of the gospel that has saved us by grace. Lord, we ask that you would help us now as we come to pay attention to your word, this word that is a hammer that shatters the rock, this word that is a sword that pierces between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Lord, we ask that you would come now, speak to us by your Holy Spirit. And may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our heart, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A while back, before electric cars were a thing, uh, there was a commercial for the Ford Fusion uh, in which a man and a woman were, were driving around sharp curves, and the woman says to the man, wow, this handle's really nice. And the man replies and says, yep, it's a great ride, and it gets great gas mileage. And the woman said to the man, wow, that beats choosing a great ride or great gas mileage. And the man says, yes, that'd be like nuts or bolts. And then the commercial switches to a family in their backyard enjoying an above-ground pool that they've just put together. The boy is floating on a, a little raft in the middle of the pool, and the man is looking at his hand, and he says, huh, I wonder what these nuts are for. And, and just at that moment, the pool collapses, and the, the boy goes floating off into the backyard. And then the commercial goes back to the couple in the car, and they say to one another, I like and better. I like and better than or. And that, that commercial has stuck with me because it so beautifully portrays something that I think is, is fundamental to the Christian life. It's at the very heart of God's word, the very heart of the gospel. And it poses this question to us. What kind of a Christian are you? Are you a nuts or bolts Christian? Or are you a nuts and bolts Christian? Now, unfortunately, it is too easy to be the former, to, to separate things that God has joined together, to create false dichotomies, to affirm either-or situations when the truth is actually a both-and. Often a both-and that, that incorporates both options. And when we are nuts or bolts Christians, we tend to fall into extremes. Often because we're running away from one extreme, 
we tend to fall into the extreme on the other side. If you know your classical uh, literature, you know Homer's Odyssey. Remember uh, the great story of Odysseus of sailing between Scylla and Charybdis. Scylla, the great six-headed monster, Charybdis, the whirlpool. And and, and Odysseus has to, to thread the needle between these two dangers. Well, In the same way, in the Christian life, there are are ditches on both sides of the road. We don't want to be in either ditch. We want to be solely on the road, in the middle of the road. Now, let me make sure I say this. I don't want to be misunderstood or misheard. There there is a place in the Christian life, in the Bible, for either or thinking. To be sure, either there is one God or there are many gods. But we can't say that either the one true God is one or he is many. No, God is one and God is three. Either Jesus is God or he is not. But we can't say either Jesus is God or he is man. The Lord Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, two natures in one person forever. We can't say either the Bible is God's word or it's not. But we cannot say also either the Bible is God's word or it's the word of man. No, the Bible is God's word communicated through men. Now, the theme for our conference, as you see, is two-handed theology. I mentioned this last night. That, that, That phraseology comes from what I heard a pastor once say. He said, every pastor, and I would argue every Christian, needs two hands. On the one hand and on the other hand. And so from our text this morning, I want to show you four illustrations, four examples of what I'm talking about when I say that we are to be nuts and bolts Christians. Four ways that that we as believers are prone to divide things that belong together. Four ways in which we live, unfortunately, as nuts or bolts Christians. And, And you see them perhaps there in your outline. First, the indicative and the imperative. Second, Christ our substitute and Christ our example. Third, theology and love or theology and relationships. And finally, effort and dependence in the Christian life. Now again, this is a text that you're familiar with. Uh, You you probably have studied it. You've heard it preached many times. Uh, And so what I want us to do this morning is is not merely look at it through a microscope, uh, but look at it through a telescope. Not only sort of look at it on a boots on the ground level, but sort of an eye in the sky level. To, to see it uh, in, in its forest as well as in its trees. And, and let's start by looking at what Paul has to teach us about the indicative and the imperative. Now, perhaps these words are, are unfamiliar to you or you're not, uh, you haven't thought about those words since, you know, sixth grade English class. Uh, what is the indicative? The indicative is the things that are, the statements of fact, right? If I were to say, I am a man, right? That's the indicative. The imperative is the commands, be a man. Right? Well, here in our passage... We see both indicatives and imperatives, don't we? In verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul states many indicatives. He says, if these things are true, right? He's assuming with that word if that they are true. If these things are true, then here's what ought to follow. Here are the commands. Here are the imperatives that Paul lays before us. He says, if Christ is encouraging and comforting you, If God's love is comforting you, if if you're enjoying the fellowship, the participation of the Holy Spirit, if the compassion of Jesus Christ is real to you, if you're a believer, if you've been changed by God's grace and and converted by his Holy Spirit, then your life, Christian, ought to, to be filled with unity, 
ought to be filled with selflessness and humility and, and putting others ahead of yourself. Paul is saying the more you understand the grace of the gospel, right, the more you ought to be living out that grace, the more you ought to be looking like your Savior. For Paul, the realities of the gospel, the things that were true about the Christian, flowed inexorably, naturally, into the way the Christian lived. The obedience that the gospel demands and creates must never be separated from the gospel itself. But here we find, as we not only look at, at our own churches, but around Christendom, right? we find that we lean toward one of the two extremes, don't we? Either we tend to focus primarily on the indicatives of the Christian life. Here is who I am in Christ. Here is what God has done for me in Jesus Christ, in the gospel. Or we tend to focus primarily on the imperatives of the Christian life. Here is what is required of me. Here is how God has called me and commanded me to live. Which one is right? Of course, the answer is they both are. And they're both wrong if they exclude the other for someone to say that they love the gospel, they, they love what God has done for them in Jesus Christ, but they don't really care about obedience, right? They don't really need to spend as much time thinking about Christ's likeness because look at all the things that Jesus has done for them. Right? That person has fallen into a ditch. That, that person is unbalanced. He's off kilter, right? He has turned the grace of the gospel into licentiousness, as Jude puts it. He has not understood the transforming power of the gospel. But on the other hand, right, when people are, 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 are when they say that, that what really matters is doing what God commands, what's really important is obeying the Ten Commandments, but they say nothing or they have forgotten about the indicatives of the gospel of grace, right, this is a sure sign that they don't understand the gospel. They don't understand that we are saved by grace and, and not by works. That, that, that obeying the imperatives does not cause the indicatives to be any more true. And that disobeying the imperatives doesn't cause the indicatives to be any less true. So you see how there are ditches on either side of the road. And because the indicatives and the imperatives were a part of Paul's preaching and teaching, the, the, the truth of the gospel of, of what God has done for us, as well as the way God calls us to live, we're, we're clearly a part of Paul's teaching throughout the Bible. Right? We must hold to both of those with two hands. But there is, isn't there, a logical order to this couplet. Right? There, there is a, a logical flow. The, the indicative must always precede the imperative. We see it here in Philippians chapter 2. Right? The indicative drives the imperative. It is the engine that impels the imperative on. If you have uh, an indicative without, uh, if, you, if you have no indicative, you have a car without an engine, right? A car without any motive power, a car that's not going anywhere. But if you have no imperative, then you have an engine without a steering wheel, without wheels. Still, there is nothing happening. That car is not moving. But what matters first is what God has done for us. What matters first is, is what he has accomplished by his sovereign power, by his grace in Jesus Christ. And then what he requires comes into play. And we see this, don't we, throughout the Bible. Think of the Ten Commandments. God does not say, look, obey these Ten Commandments, and I'll think about rescuing you out of Egypt. No, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who rescued you out of the house of slavery, 
Therefore, obey the law of God. We see this, don't we, in the book of Romans. He spends, Paul spends the first 11 chapters unpacking right, the glorious realities of the gospel, the glorious indicatives of what God has done for us in Christ. And in Romans 12, 1, what does he say? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, in view of God's mercy, that you would present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice. Here is how you're called to live. We see the same thing in Ephesians, don't we? Chapters 1 to 3. Here is what God has accomplished for his church in Jesus Christ. Chapters 4 to 6, therefore, he says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. They go together, indicative and imperative, but the indicative comes first. Paul was a nuts and bolts Christian. The indicative and the imperative were absolutely important to him. But you've got to stick the bolt through the hole before you screw the nut on. The indicative comes first. Well, that brings us to our second example that we see here in the text. Christ, our substitute, and Christ, our example. This false dichotomy uh, is closely related to the first. In verses 6 through 11, Paul gives this amazing description of the good news of Jesus. He speaks of his preexistence. He speaks of his incarnation, his life of obedience, his death, his, his exaltation. Paul's language here is is widely acknowledged by scholars to be poetic, uh, perhaps even an early creed or or hymn. Whether it was written by Paul or by someone else in the early church, it's clearly the language of worship. It's clearly language that, that praises Christ for what he did. Because of what Jesus has done for us in our place, as our substitute, we are saved. Jesus has been born in order that he might die in order that he might rise from the dead to conquer sin and death. He was born in order to live a perfect, sinless life so that all who put their trust in him are justified, are declared righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. All who put their trust in Jesus have his righteousness and his death reckoned to our account as if we were the one who obeyed God perfectly, as if we were the one who had suffered the punishment due to our sins. The substitutionary atonement, the vicarious atonement, Jesus dying and living in the place of his people and rising in the place of his people. It's fundamental. It is important, all important to the gospel. And yet, look at what Paul is doing here in Philippians chapter 2. He is setting forth the work of Jesus Christ Primarily as an example for the saints of God to follow, isn't he? Look at verse 5. Have this mind, this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's just told them how they are to relate to one another. They are to do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, they account one another more significant than themselves. And now Paul is saying, if you want to see what I'm talking about, Look to Jesus. If you want to know what it looks like to live a humble, self-denying life, putting others ahead of yourself, then look to Jesus. Look at the way that Jesus lived. Look at the way that Jesus died. You see, for Paul, the sacrificial life and, and death and resurrection of Jesus was not merely the means by which he was saved. It was also the pattern to which his life was being conformed. Jesus 
was Paul's substitute, and Jesus was Paul's model. And it was the same for Peter, wasn't it? In, in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that by his wounds we are healed. That is the substitutionary nature of the gospel in a nutshell, right? But the main point that Peter is making there in 1 Peter 2 is, is this. He says, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you would follow in his steps. So you see, for Peter, for Paul, Christ our substitute, Christ our example, they're both true. We must hold on to them constantly with both hands, with two hands. But unfortunately, what we find so often in the church is a, a splitting, a dividing, a dichotomizing of these two realities, these two truths. Some focus only on Christ as our example, as if the gospel is be like Jesus, be more like Jesus. That's all you might ever hear. And so the gospel message boils down to if you could just be like Jesus more, right, then maybe, maybe he would think about accepting you. For some, the cross has lost all significance as a death in the place of sinners. The cross becomes merely just a good example that we as Christians can follow. Wow, did you see how Jesus really endured a lot of suffering? Right? That's what it means to, to, to be a Christian, right? That's how you become a Christian. So you can fall into this ditch of, of so isolating, so emphasizing, overemphasizing the example of Jesus Christ that you lose completely the substitutionary nature of his death and of his gospel. But others are so afraid of losing this that their radars go up every time they hear someone even mention the example of Christ's death or the example of anyone in the scriptures. They instantly equate using someone as a model, as an example. They instantly equate saying, be like in a sermon or in a Bible study or don't be like. They say, well, that's, that's legalism. That's moralism. That's not the gospel. And you scratch your head and you say, well, interesting. How can you read Philippians 2 and not see that Paul here is clearly setting forth Jesus as an example? How can you read Paul and not see that he sets himself forth as an example? 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul looks at the Israelites in the wilderness and, and says explicitly, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Jesus himself does that, doesn't he? In Luke 17, one of the shortest verses in the Bible, he says, remember Lot's wife. Why is he saying that? Because he's saying, don't be like Lot's wife. Don't love this world so much that you're going to turn around and look back longingly, fondly. Remember Lot's wife, he says. In John 13, verse 15, Jesus is even more explicit about himself. He says, I gave you an example, right, as he washed the disciples' feet, so that you also should do just as I did to you. So do you see how in the, in the gospel, in the Bible, we see this dual emphasis upon the, the substitutionary nature of God's grace in Jesus Christ. But also the exemplary nature of it, that Jesus has, has lived and has died for us as an example for us to follow. Both of these things are true. We must embrace Jesus both as our substitute and as our example. And of course, again, there is an order, isn't there? 
if you try to follow Jesus as your example without first knowing him as your substitute, you'll continually be frustrated. You'll continually be depressed because you'll never be able to follow the example of Jesus unless you have first rested and trusted in him as your substitute. Again, think of a nut and a bolt. Imagine what it would be like, how frustrating, how discouraged you would be if you held the the nut up to the, the piece of metal without having the bolt sticking through the hole. Why does this nut keep dropping on the ground? Because there is not the bolt first. Why can't I follow the example of Jesus? Why am I constantly not living up to Christ's example? Well, brother, sister, the first thing you need to do is rest your soul upon the substitutionary work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus. And then by his grace, resting in his power, working in you by his spirit, you will be able to follow more and more the example of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not Jesus our example. The gospel is Jesus our substitute. But the gospel of grace has no problem then saying, now that you have trusted in me as your substitute, follow me as your example. The greatest example, Paul would say, of self-denial, of humility, of servanthood, of perseverance. Which brings us to the third point. Theology and love. Theology and relationships, we might say. And again, this couplet is related to the first two, isn't it? I think about the situation in the Philippian church. They are clearly struggling relationally, aren't they? It appears that Epaphroditus has brought Paul back a report about conflicts within the church, especially if you turn to chapter 4, verse 2, you see this very specific conflict between two women, Euodia and Syntyche, that Paul names them by name, points out, hey, you ladies, you need to agree in the Lord, you need to get along. Clearly, Paul writes what he writes here in verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 in order that he might call the, the church in Philippi to live with less selfishness and more selflessness, to live with less pride and with more humility. Now, after he tells them how he wants them to live, what would you expect him to, to go from there? Where would you expect him to, to go? What would you expect him to say? Perhaps you might expect Paul to, to give. Now, here are ten instructions, ten practical steps to living a humble life. That's not what Paul does, is it? Rather, Paul gives to the saints incredibly robust theology about Jesus Christ. Paul's answer for their relational struggles, for their lack of love, is Christology. It's knowing Jesus better. His analysis of their struggles is that they don't understand, they don't know enough about Jesus. They don't know enough theology. This is remarkable, isn't it? And to the modern church, this makes no sense. We see so often theology in life in sort of two you know, airtight containers. Here's theology over here, here's what we believe, and here's how we live. And, and the two have no connection to one another so often. Our, our theology and our life, our, our theology and, and our relationship with other people. Right? There, there's no intersection between the two. And we've seen it, haven't we? Perhaps even in ourselves. There are the people who have incredible theological knowledge, incredible depth of, of biblical knowledge, right? And yet, their knowledge, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, puffs them up with pride rather than making them humble. Or it makes them, as the kids might say, a bit awkward, right? 
They know so much that they don't know how to relate to other people. But on the other hand, there are Christians who have seen the damage that that sort of theologizing can do. And so what is their response? It's to say, why do we even worry about theology? Why do we even need to worry about what we believe? Why can't we just love Jesus? Why can't we just love one another? But Paul would say, both of you are crazy. Both of that makes no sense to Paul. For Paul, theology was for life, and life was grounded upon sound theology. The two are inextricably connected, and they ought to be for each one of us. Listen to how Donald MacLeod, a Scottish theologian, puts it. As he comments upon this passage, he writes, Philippians 2, 1-11 reminds us that theology does not exist in a vacuum. It exists in order to be applied to the day-to-day problems of the Christian church. Every doctrine has its application. And all the application must be based upon doctrine. And then he says this. He says, in both Philippians 2, 1-11, and you remember 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, if you remember 2 Corinthians 8, where the the Corinthians are, are struggling with being generous, and Paul is calling them to generosity. He says, in both these passages, Paul is dealing with what are surely comparative trivia. The problem of vainglory in the Christian congregation and the problem of failure of Christian liberality. And McLeod says this, yet Paul, as he wrestles with both of these seemingly minor, seemingly unconsequential problems, he has recourse to the most massive theology. Who would ever have imagined that the response to the glory of the incarnation might be to stop our quarreling and our divisiveness in the Christian church. Paul is telling them, you have these practical problems. The answer is theological. Remember your theology. Place your behavior in the light of this massive theology. Is that the way you think about what you believe and how you live, about your theology and your life? Of course, this tendency to create a false dichotomy between theology and, and love, theology and life, theology and relationships It's not new, not even in reform circles, isn't it? We can go back to the years 1740 to 42, when God's Spirit moved in a mighty way in North America, particularly in the New England colonies. The great American pastor, Jonathan Edwards, was intimately involved in what eventually came to be known as the Great Awakening. In response to that awakening there in in 1740 to 42, as well as an earlier one in the 1730s, Edwards wrote some books meditating upon and reflecting upon, examining these revivals and the fruit of them in light of the scriptures. One of the most important and famous books that he wrote was in 1746 called The Religious Affections, in which he sought to explore what a true work of God in the heart of man looks like. The word affections is is somewhat similar, uh, though not exactly synonymous, to what we call feelings or emotions. There were many in Edwards' day who claimed that that these revivals were merely an excess of emotionalism. As you can imagine, they were promptly accused of being intellectualist, right? Of only focusing on the rational, the mind, rather than the heart. So in the book, The Religious Affections, Edwards writes these words and takes a strike at both extremes. He says this, as there is not true religion, where there is nothing else but affection, when there's only affection, that's not true religion. So there is no true religion 
when there is no religious affection. On the one hand, there must be light in the understanding as well as an affected, fervent heart. Where there is heat without light, there can be nothing divine or heavenly in that heart. But on the other hand, he says, where there's a kind of light without heat, a head stored with notions and speculations, with a cold and unaffected heart, there can be nothing divine in that light. If the great things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. You see what Edwards is saying? He's saying to both groups, this is not an either-or situation. This is a both-and situation. True religion, true Christianity, true spirit-engendered and created religion consists of both light in the head and heat in the heart. A clear understanding of truth that powerfully affects the heart. And Edwards knew that there were ditches on both sides of the road. He knew that believing the truth of God Believing that doctrine matters can become dry intellectualism. But believing that truth must affect the heart can become shallow emotionalism. I don't care about theology. I just love Jesus. I just love other people. And Edward would say, no, both of those are wrong. Both of those are wrong. As you look at yourself, on what side do you tend to err? I can think of my own... Christian experience, growing up in a Christian home, coming to embrace Reformed theology in late high school and and early college uh, through RUF and the first PCA church that I was exposed to through men like R.C. Sproul and John Piper. And I can remember in college, right, living through, experiencing what we often call the cage stage when young Reformed folks ought to be put in a cage and, and held up away from other people. Because we, 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 we live with our theology, we hold our theology with such pride and, and arrogance and, and looking down on others. We've been there perhaps. You've been there perhaps. I know I've been there. But the answer is not to say, well, we don't need to be thinking about theology. That's the problem. We were thinking about theology too much. No. The more theology we know, the more Christology we know, Paul would say, the more we should be able to love the Lord Jesus, and to love other people. We are called to be nuts and bolts Christians when it comes to theology, when it comes to life and love and relationships. We must hold to and speak the truth in love. Well, finally, our last point, our last couplet that we see here in this passage is that of effort and dependence. We're back to where we started, aren't we? Obeying God in light of his amazing grace. In verses 12 to 13, Paul tells the Philippians to obey, not just in his presence, but in his absence, right? Obey, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? He says he wants them to do this. Why? Because God is at work in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. You see, in the Christian life, the pursuit of holiness, it is not an either or. Either you strive for holiness or you depend on grace for holiness. No, it's a both and. It's a both and. We've seen it though, haven't we? The determined saying, I am going to be more holy. If my life depends on it, I am going to put to death this sin. And yet there is no dependence upon the grace 
of God. Never a thought that he can do nothing without the power of God, the grace of God enabling him. But then you've also seen other so-called Christians who don't lift one finger toward the pursuit of holiness, who think they've been saved by grace, and so it doesn't matter now how they live. They just sit back and let go and let God. And both of these, Paul would say, are wrong. And what's right is that you put the two together. We strive for holiness and we depend. And again, the order is clear. It's because God is at work in us that we strive, that we pursue, that we work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. We never use our dependence upon God's grace as an excuse, as a laziness but nor do we obey as if it all depends on us, as if we can put sin to death and live unto righteousness all by ourselves. And don't we see this in the way Paul talks about his own life, right? Where, where he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 15, 10, he says, I worked harder than all of them, meaning the other apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Or in Colossians chapter 1, if you flip over, a couple of pages of verse 29, Paul says, For this purpose, this gospel, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Effort and dependence. So here are these four couplets that we are prone often to split, that Paul would say, hold them together. Hold them with two hands together. Let me close with a few applications for us in our relationships, because that is the point of this chapter, isn't it? First, your relationship with God. In these pairs, do not separate what God has joined together. Even if you can't answer all of your questions about how both of these things come in true in each case, right? particularly in that last one, effort and dependence gets us into the whole question of, of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And sometimes we think, I don't understand, I can't understand. Don't worry if you can't understand. Rather, realize that God has revealed in his word what is true, that these are not either ors, but they are both ands. And so we believe his word. We stand upon his word, even when we don't understand how they both can go together. That's the first application to our relationship with God. But secondly, in our relationship to other people, whenever you hear someone or see someone living as if one of these parts of the couplet is unnecessary, right? as if there really is only one part that's true, I would encourage you to give them the benefit of the doubt. We have even confessed our sin in this regard, haven't we? Forgive the harsh judgments we have made of others and the leniency we have shown ourselves. Give, give to others what the church has called a judgment of charity. Remember that you can never say everything at once. And so you must listen to people for a little while. Make sure... Uh, before you assess that they have fallen off the ditch on this side, make sure that it's not the case that they're, they're just speaking sort of, you know, maybe against the people falling in the ditch on the other side. And, and so they themselves, if you, if you drew it out of them, you realize, now they're a little more to the center than perhaps we might think. But to ourselves, again, as we've confessed our sin this morning, give yourself a judgment of severity. Don't show any leniency to yourself. Be ruthless when it comes to, to putting away the excess, the extremes of thinking and living as if one or the other of the element of these couplets is true. Right? It's one thing to know that false dichotomies exist, 
that there are ditches on both sides of the road, but it's another thing to avoid them. We all fall into different ditches at different points in our Christian life, even at different points of the week. And so we must, by God's grace, beware that pendulum swing. Beware the, the going from one extreme to the other. The goal is balance and poise and, and holding a straight course as we live our life. One of the things I've always wanted to do is fly a helicopter. Then I got married and had kids, and you're like, yep, that ain't happening, right? Too expensive and certainly too dangerous. But if, you, if, if you've ever known anything about flying a helicopter, there are three controls, right, that, that, that it takes. There, there is the, the control on the left, right, that controls the, um, the, the, the up and down. There's the control there in the middle that controls the forward, backward, you know, side to side. And then there's the foot pedal that controls the rotation of the whole machine, the whole aircraft. Right? And to fly a helicopter, you've got to be in balance on all three of these things. What a beautiful picture of the Christian life. Right? We are called to, to be those who, who live a balanced Christian life. Oftentimes, it's said that a preacher's job is to unbalance the truth for the sake of application. I like that, but I also don't like it. Because why can't it be the preacher's job to balance truth for the sake of application? Hopefully, that's what I've tried to do this morning. Right? And I want you to notice that in these four couplets... There is a likeness, isn't there, within the pairs. And sometimes we tend to see ourselves fall in one of these likenesses or not. On the one hand, you have imperative, Christ our example, theology, effort. On the other hand, indicative, Christ our substitute, love, dependence. They're both true. They're both true. But we need to know our hearts, know our tendencies, know where we tend to fall off the cliff. I want you to have two hands as you approach the scriptures, as you approach theology. We read it in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 18. It's good, says Solomon, that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them, or the way some translations put it, escapes both of them, escapes both ditches. We're called to hold on to both things. You know where you fall along those spectrums. Ultimately, Christ is our shepherd who must help us and enable us to maintain right, the middle road, the, the down the center, not falling into either of the ditches. Paul shows us here in this passage what that balance looks like. It's Christ by his spirit moving among us that enables us to live in such a way, to avoid both ditches and to walk with him in holiness and reliance upon his grace. May he make it so. For Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church, for my own congregation in Ridgeland, Mississippi, for the whole PCA, and for all of his people. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, would you give us grace, Lord, to balance these couplets with skill? Would you give us grace by your Spirit to rest our souls upon what you have done for us and to walk in the power of what you are doing in us? Lord, thank you for the Lord's Day that gives us a chance to reset, to be refreshed, to be reminded each and every week, Lord, of how we have gone off the rails and, and fallen off the balance beam. Lord, help us, we pray, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called.